I think it was the second or third day and she said, um, I suppose there's no point in doing any of this, is there really? Because I'll be dead soon and you can't take memories with you. And it was like, oosh, <laughs> ow. Hello there and welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I'm so glad that you're here. I'm raising a baby with my husband in California. And as a new parent trying to figure it all out, I started a podcast to learn from people about how we make our families and how those families end up making us. In each episode, I talk to fascinating people about family. We use the conversations to redefine family in the biggest, most inclusive and heartfelt ways possible. In this episode, I'm talking to Sam Walker. Sam is a veteran BBC journalist who worked in Manchester, England for a long time, almost 15 years. Just before the pandemic, she and her husband packed up their two kids and moved halfway around the world, from England to Arizona. She's been documenting this giant life change for her family and what they're learning along the way in her new podcast, Sam Walker's Desert Diaries. There's something really infectious about Sam's energy. Her passion for life and people and experiences draw me to her. And, of course, I'm a fan of anyone who shares my son's name. In fact, I talked to her on my son's second birthday. Before Sam Walker was born, her mother was told that she couldn't have children. It was really devastating news for her parents. Then, her mom and dad went on vacation to Spain... And her mom didn't feel so well during the trip. She was really sick the whole time she was there, but thought it was those kind of typical, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. going abroad, funny food. Oh, the temperature's right. a bit different. That's why she was sick. She came home and then was um, went to the doctor and said, I am just keep being sick. I don't know what's wrong with me. And the doctor told her she was pregnant. So my dad, she told my dad mm. on the way home, he then crashed the car while uh, she told him. But that was me. So I grew up being told, yeah, <laughs> not a bad crash, but he drove off the road. Um, okay. So, I mean, I grew up being told you're a miracle. You know, you, you, you were, I don't know how you got through. You got through somehow, mm. but you did. And so mm. um, I felt very, very loved and very supported. I also did, if I'm honest, feel the weight of, all that expectation on top of me because, you know, my mum's dad died, my dad's dad left. They prevailed through that terrible misfortune and poverty. You know, you've got us and we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a house, you know, and I had my own bedroom and my parents put everything onto education. So we had, (laughs) we had terrible cars growing up. And I know this is first world problems, but we had the cars that I literally had to push down the road in my school uniform every morning to get them to jump start to get to school because we had like the, the most wrecking cars that we could do. And I remember being picked up from school and saying to my mum, please, can you park around the corner? Because if, if the car stops and I have to push it, I'm just mortified because right. all the money went on my education because they sent me to a private school. And so... Uh, we didn't go on vacation. We didn't go on holiday. We had terrible cars (laughs) because all the money, every bit of money was spent on my education. And I'm not being ungrateful because what they gave to me was an incredible gift because my education, you know, has 
been, as I said, such a gift to me. But you also have that expectation then, oh, God, you can't screw up because yeah. all the money's been spent on the education and yeah. it wasn't till after they got divorced I discovered that a big part of the divorce settlement was who was going to pay off my school fees. And I'd left yeah. school six years previously. So it yeah. shows you what a big deal it was that they did yeah. that, you know. So I always felt like we were very much our own little unit. You know, other members of the family had stayed closer together. We were kind of out on our own and it was just the three of us and we were really close. My parents had my back. I mean, I didn't realize how much they had my back, I think, until later in life when my now ex-husband, my first husband, was saying to me at one point where I was freaking out about something. I was going, I don't know what to do. And he was like, oh, why don't you phone your mom? She'll just sort it out for you like she does everything. And I was like, what? And it didn't, mm. I thought everyone's parents did that for them. And in fact, I, to a degree, I do do that for my children. But I mean, that, that said more about his relationship with his parents, of course, than, than mm. me with mine. But, you know, mm. my mom would absolutely fight for me if someone was bullying me she would be there and she would deal with it and she would give me the tools to deal with it but then she was also my fiercest critic that mm. goes without saying I suppose those two things do quite often come hand in hand so I think right. there was that very very close relationship where there was that kind of fierce criticism versus absolute support you know <laughs> which is so you know quite intense right so you have a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old yeah. now I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about them yes well Lila is my I can't believe I'm saying this out loud but teenager I don't know how this has happened I'm surely still 19 myself but yeah. um my son turned two today and I'm like where did those years go and I feel like he's going to be 15 before I know it he will he will be <laughs> absolutely he will be so my friend Kirsten called me one day and told me that she was pregnant and I was ah how exciting and I was like I think I was 30 or 34 I can't remember and I was so so excited for her and I'd been thinking about we maybe want to have a baby but we didn't you know it's scary because <laughs> you're like whoa so much responsibility and um right. and I think Kirsten hearing her news and the feeling I had in my gut made me go oh, gosh I, I really I want it as well I realized so super lucky got pregnant ping like that and mm, nine weeks later I had a miscarriage and I was devastated and then I had to make all these phone calls and tell everyone there wasn't a baby anymore and oh it was awful and my grandma sent me flowers but there was obviously some mix-up at the florist because the flower said congratulations on them which oh. was just like oh and I knew it wasn't from her but it, oh it was right. just so painful I did all the things that people do I dyed my hair various colors and we both went a little bit crazy for a while it was horrible and devastating and then I remember Kirsten's son being born and holding him and she was saying you've got to do this you've got to do this and all I could think was I'm trying to do it I'm trying and it was awful and then we kind of felt okay well let's give it a go again ping super lucky pregnant instantly and they gave me at the hospital because I'd been you know, and had my miscarriage. And they were like, look, if you, you know, when, when you get pregnant again, come back, we'll give you a super early scan. Because in England, you can get a scan at 13 weeks. And so I went back at like six weeks and there it was, the little bean, you know, the heartbeat. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's a baby. Oh. So I was really, really happy. And then Lila was born in October mm. 2007 and we were so happy and so felt really lucky. And, you know, 
even though it had been a very hard time, what had happened, we were like, okay, you know, it's it's great. It was a blip. These things happen. Here she is. Can I just Mm -hmm. ask, I'm sorry, I love hearing about, you don't have to tell the whole Mm. story, but just like a flash of a the memory of the moment she was born or moments thereafter. Like I'm always curious to hear people talk about that moment because I've I've had it myself and it's such a... It's amazing. It's amazing. So I'd contracted gestational diabetes while I was pregnant with Lila, which is what some women can get when they're pregnant. So you have to be careful with your insulin levels. If they drop too low, it can endanger the baby. So I was being super monitored throughout the whole last couple of months of my pregnancy. And so they induced me early. So they took me in and they induced me on Thursday. And (laughs) it was very clear. And if you met her now, you'd be like, that makes sense. Lila was going nowhere. She's like, I'm happy. I'm comfortable. I'm not moving. (laughs) Do your worst. It's not happening. So I kind of, then they broke my waters about, I think the next day on the Friday to try and get labor moving along. I had oxytocin pumping into my body via a drip to try and again start the process off. And I kind of really started full-blown labor about eight o'clock in the evening. And it was incredibly painful and you know all the things that we all know labor is and then they tested and they checked me and they went you're one centimeter dilated I was like are you kidding me (laughs) this is Mm. I've been in labor I mean like probably about a day and a half by this stage but the real full-on kind of clinging onto the walls for about nine hours and so I was like give me an epidural I'm done I'm I don't you don't get a medal Mm. for bravery during this (laughs) give me an epidural right I finally was dilated enough they're like okay you're gonna get ready to push I was pushing for two and a half hours and I was exhausted I was exhausted and I was lying in this room and and I remember the amazing midwife saying to me you're doing really well you're doing really well and I went I remember saying I'm clearly not doing very well, am I? Do you see a baby? I don't see a baby. If I was doing well, there'd be a baby here. There isn't a baby. My husband was like, you were so sarcastic, even in your most time of most pain. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't, I was so furious. <laughs> and they said, okay, look. And she came to me and she sat right down next to me and she said, okay, you've been pushing for a long time. You're tired. Your baby is starting to get a bit upset. I'm going to give you 10 minutes. If this baby isn't in 10 minutes, I'm going to need to call a doctor because we're going to need to take you into theater and get her out, okay? So I want you to do your best for me for 10 minutes, because I don't want to call a doctor. You don't want to call a doctor. Let's just do it. And I remember her, this kind of really strong memory of her doing this. And we hadn't been able to decide whether to call her Bibi or Lila. And Lila is Arabic. In Arabic, it means night. And I remember kind of pushing and pushing, and because of my gestational diabetes we were told a doctor would have to come in in the moments after the baby was born to check the baby was okay and so the midwife had said to my husband your job is to ring the bell when I say now you need to ring the bell and that bell is going to call a doctor to the room because it means the baby's about to be born so I remember like pushing and I remember I'd really wanted her to be born to this album by a band called Doves there's a band from Manchester called Doves and this album had meant a lot to me in my life during a very difficult time and I thought I'd love her to be born to one of those songs and that could be her song that she takes with her anyway I was pushing away she was taking her own sweet time my iPod remember those clunky old ones that were enormous and you know Mm -hmm. my iPod skipped from Doves D-O-V-E-S to Dusty Springfield D-U was the next one along (laughs) so I remember I Only Want to Be With You by Dusty Springfield starting up and this amazing midwife said ring the bell so my husband rings the bell and I'm like oh my gosh she's coming so she's born to the sounds of Dusty Springfield I only want to be with you and I remember that 
they picked her and just seeing her being picked up and then just put onto my chest. And she was so awake and so alert. And I just looked down and she just like locked her eyes on me. And she's got really blue eyes now, really pale blue eyes like me. But her eyes were so dark. And I went, oh my gosh, look at her eyes. They're so dark. And my husband said, like night. And we went, Lila, Lila, she's Lila. And, um, Mm. oh gosh, I'm emotional talking about her because it's, you know. I know, me me too. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. All you can think about is, um, yeah, the fact her room Mm. is an absolute tip and she's really grumpy. No, she's not grumpy. She's an amazing teenager, actually. She's an amazing teenager. But yeah, so, you know, taking back all that time. But um, yeah, so that was her birth. And uh, yeah, I remember my husband just running out and again, ringing various family from around the world. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah, that's the moment your life changes, right? That's the moment you yeah. become a parent. It's yeah, incredible. It's just a really beautiful moment. Yeah. Uh, and you realize so then, you. you realize then how your parents feel about you. And you can never imagine that feeling until you become a parent. And I remember growing up and watching movies and hearing songs and I'd die for you. And I'd think, oh, as much as I like you, husband or boyfriend or partner, I wouldn't die for you. I mean, okay, I, I care about you, but I'm sorry. You know, if there's, one, if there's one life vest, I'm taking it. And then you have a child and you go, oh, All right. oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, this is, oh, I, I would take the bullet. You can have the life vest. And you cannot imagine what that feels like, All can right. you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, our life totally changed. <laughs> then you had another child at some point, right? Yeah, so then tried to get pregnant, well, got pregnant again. Ping, very luckily, very happily. Because of my previous miscarriage, again, they gave me a scan at six weeks. There was the baby, the heartbeat. And I was on air because I was a radio presenter in the UK. I was on air and I went to the bathroom and there was a single drop of blood. One drop. Ping. And this was at about, I can't remember, 11 weeks pregnant, something like that. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. And I called the midwife and she said, it's nothing. You're far enough along. We've seen the heartbeat. We've seen the baby. You're good. People have miscarriages, but once you get to a certain stage, it's like 1% of pregnancies don't sustain. You're good. Come in tomorrow if you don't feel great about yourself. And I thought, I just need, I just need to see her again. I need the baby. I didn't know boy or girl. I need to, I need to, I need to. So I went in and had a scan and they were like, I just need to go and fetch somebody else. And I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no came back and yeah there was no heartbeat the baby died like two days before according to this you know they have the growth charts so horrendous devastation again having to then take pills to send me into labor to give birth to a baby that wasn't well was a baby but would never be an alive baby was horrendous and I and I totally packaged that up and I put it in a place and I I shut the door and I didn't process it at all because I was devastated and I was very matter of fact about it and I went to work that afternoon and did a radio show because that was my way of dealing with it it happened that was a thing that happened let's draw a line let's move on and I'm not losing a day's pay and I was angry I was angry with myself and I was angry with my body and I was kind of angry with the baby and I was like well you know, all this very matter of fact, ridiculous. And 
so fast forward, pregnant again, ping, wonderful, go and have a scan, a live baby, the heartbeat, you know, on the monitor, it's like, isn't it? And they were like, we'll give you a scan in two weeks, just so you feel good, you feel okay. I was like, all right. So I went back in for scan in two weeks. There's the baby alive. Look, grown. Everything's great. Everything's developed. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. And then I go back. I think they said, come back in a month. We don't need you in two weeks. Come back in a bit longer. So I think it was about 14 weeks. And I go in. And I'm really nervous. Because I'm like, hmm. I don't like being in this room. Bad things have happened in this room. I've been told bad news in this room. And I'm there with David. And there's this doctor I haven't met before. And she said, okay, let's give you the scan. And she starts, I said, is everything okay? She was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Kind of very matter of fact, hang on. Giving me more of the scan. And I'm like, is everything okay? Hang on, hang on, hang on. So we're signing that. I'm starting to feel sick with nerves. And she went, right, right, right. She turns the screen around. She went, there's the baby's head. There's the baby's arms. There's the baby's legs. And I'm like, okay. She went, but there's no heartbeat. And that's how she told us that our baby had died. Like it was a matter of fact. And it was, that was the one that totally crushed me. It crushed me. I don't know whether it's because it lasted longer, survived longer. I don't know whether it's because we'd had more scans. But it, it absolutely crushed me. And it was also the one that when I had to go through and take the pills and give birth again, you have to give birth into these sort of little paper bowls, cardboard bowls, because they have to check everything, right? You kind of, you give them what's called the products of conception. And I'm like, that's my baby. And you're calling it a product of conception. Well, this time, I don't know whether it's because the baby was a bit bigger or what it was, but whereas previously I'd seen sort of, you know, the... um, the actual pregnancy sack and the baby had been inside. This time I saw the baby and it was tiny, tiny little thing, but was very clearly a baby, you know? And, um, I, I think something just kind of broke. I think when I saw that, cause I just, I just couldn't process it. And I didn't understand why this kept happening to me and why was it happening to me? What was I doing wrong? And why was I killing them all? Because clearly I could get pregnant and and they were alive. And then while I was meant to be looking after them, they had died. So what had I done, you know? And I really remember looking in the mirror in that funny little side bathroom, looking, seeing this baby in this cardboard bowl and just looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Because I'd killed my baby and I didn't know why. And this is what I felt. And, you know, I remember... Just, everything was just a daze. It was a dream, you know. I just, I, I don't know how I really got through the next year because it happened twice more, and I would get pregnant, and then they just, and I was like, why? And so I, I kept trying to get help from doctors, and and they, the waiting list was so long, and uh, I went to see the, went to the hospital, and they were like, this is like. February, I think. And they said, we can see you in November. And I was like, November? I was like, it's like nearly another year. And I was about 37 by this stage. And I was like, that's even longer. I mean, every year you get older, the risk is more. And I, it was just 
desperate, desperate, desperate. And I was spent my whole time on message boards, tearing myself to bits, trying to work out why on earth this was happening and just desperately trying to find answers. I was just a, a complete and utter mess. I remember sitting at the kitchen table. Lila was two and a half, maybe three by this stage. And she said to me, when's my baby arriving, mummy? When's the baby arriving? And I said, oh, there isn't a baby, darling. She went, yes, there is. I saw it on the TV screen in the hospital. Because she'd been with us at one of the scans. And I was like, oh, I didn't even think she'd taken it in or understood what was going on. So it was horrendous. And I didn't sleep. I was having panic attacks that something was going to happen to Lila. I was having panic attacks when I, when I was driving that I was going to somehow skid off the road and I'd see kids playing football by the side of the road and I'd think, oh, I'm going to, my foot's going to slip and I'm going to run them over and I'm going to kill them because I was so, you know, I think because my babies kept dying, I was like, bad things happen all the time and I can't control that. So I really, really, really struggled. And I went to my doctor and I said, I need some, I need some help. I'm not sleeping I'm having panic attacks all the time. And this is after like a couple of years. And she said, oh, I can't, if I give you antidepressants, you can't get pregnant. She said, so I can't give you antidepressants. Why don't you go to an acupuncturist or something? And I was like, are you kidding me? I was furious. I was so angry. I was like, what do you mean go to an acupuncturist or something? It seems such a throwaway thing to say. She gave me a number and I went home and I was like, right, okay, I'm going to go to this acupuncturist. And then when it doesn't work, I'm then going to go back to you and go, right, I've done that. Now actually bloody help me. I was so angry. And I called up and I went to see this acupuncturist, Claire. And I sat there and I sobbed for two hours. Hmm. And Claire said said some things which, you know, really, really changed my life. And she said, why are you speaking to yourself like that? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, if your daughter, Lila, who was then three... If she's running across the room and she falls over and hurts herself, do you say, you idiot? Why have you fallen over and hurt yourself? What's wrong with you? And I'm like, of course, of course not. Of course I don't say that. Mm-hmm. I'd say, you poor thing. It's not your fault. It's okay. I love you. Give me a hug. And she said, so why don't you do that for yourself? And I was like, wow, I didn't ever think that. And she said, have you ever thought about the fact that those babies, you looked after them as best you could? perhaps with somebody else, because I kept thinking if someone else had carried them, they'd be alive. And she was like, maybe with someone else, they wouldn't even live that long. You don't know. You were their mother and you looked after them for the time of their life that they were here. You couldn't do any more. And it was really strange. And I had the acupuncture and I left there. And about two hours later, I had this almost frenzied high where it literally felt like I'd taken Vaseline off the lenses of my glasses. The world was literally brighter. Hmm. It was the most surreal experience. And I'd booked in to have a haircut. And I went and I was talking to my hairdresser. And I was like, this feels really weird, this conversation. Why does this conversation feel weird? And I realized, <laughs> I realized I was looking at her in her eye. And I hadn't looked anyone in the eye for like two years because I was so broken by everything that had happened. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is what communication feels like. I'd forgotten because I'd switched, I'd closed myself off from the world because I couldn't take the pain that was there. So Claire, that acupuncturist, was the most incredible experience I've ever had. Six Mm. weeks later, I was pregnant. Mm. And (laughs) you can imagine every scan I had during that pregnancy, I was like shaking with fear. And it was 
so difficult. And until I was holding her in my arms, I never, ever, ever thought I would have her. Um, but I did. And she was born on my birthday. <laughs> wow. So there you go. There was... Uh, the layers of the onion keep yeah, getting right. peeled off. <laughs> what's, her, what's her name? Britta. 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 Yeah. Beautiful. So Lila and Britta. It was a mission to get them. I'm so lucky. Oh my gosh, I'm so aware how lucky I am. And everyone has their own ways of making their family. And mine wasn't the most simple, but it also wasn't the most complicated. And in the end, I'm also lucky enough to be able to look back and think if those other babies had lived a longer time, I wouldn't have Britta. And mm. I can't imagine my life without her. So, you know, that's, that's mm. comfort for sure. Thank you for sharing all of that. More with Sam Walker in just a minute. If you're liking what you're listening to, I would be so grateful if you hit follow wherever you're listening to this podcast. So after being raised by her mom and dad and being told she was a miracle baby and the three of them having a tight-knit Three Musketeers vibe, their trio was dramatically upended as soon as Sam left home for the first time. It was when I was in my very, very early 20s. So I'd kind of left home. I'd gone off to university. Well, before I went to university, I went traveling for a year. I saved up and I went traveling for a year to Australia where we had some sort of family friends. And while I was there, I fell in love with Australia and I came home going, I'm going to go and live in Australia. I love it. Oh, I just adore it. It's the most amazing country. As soon as I'm done with university, I'm going to go and move to Australia. And my mum and dad said, well, maybe we should all move to Australia, right? And so my mum went on a bit of a mission and she quit her job and she went off to Australia on a kind of fact-finding mission to see if there were jobs out there, to see if there was a place to live. And then she didn't come back. This was pre-mobile phone. This was pre-internet, really. Dad and I didn't know where she was. We kind of knew she was staying with some friends, but every time I called them, they were a bit awkward saying, she's not here right now. We don't quite know where she is. And at one day, we both got letters on that kind of crinkly blue airmail paper that you used to get. And it was her, my mum, saying, I'm not coming back. And there you go. So it was a really really difficult, horrible time. So, I mean, to fast forward a little, two years later then, my dad goes through a process in terms of, I suppose, coming to terms of what he's going to do with his life. And he decides to go and live in Africa and teach kids in a school in Africa, in East Africa, Tanzania. So my family home is gone. My family bedroom is gone. And I know in the great scheme of things, you know, this happens, it's okay, but it's still quite hard when you go, wow, I don't have a base anymore. I don't have that mm. anchor to my childhood anymore. I had no real reason to go back to that town anymore. My mum is in Australia. My dad is in Africa. What's happened to our little strong unit of three that was my complete mm. anchor growing up? I'm in London. I have no one. And I and I remember making a big joke of it and I'd meet people and they go, oh, about your family have you got um 
brother, you know, tell it, where, where do you, where's your mum and dad? I was like, oh, my dad lives in Africa and my mum lives in um, Australia. And they're like, wow, that's incredible. Wow, that's really cool. So have you got brothers and sisters? And I was like, oh, no, I'm an only child. So <laughs> imagine how awful I am that just all by myself, I managed to drive them to different parts of the world. And, mm. you know, I made a joke out of it, but it was, it was horrible. For a long time, Sam had wanted to move to the United States. And a couple of years ago, she finally made the jump. Her family moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Big adventure. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, there's a whole podcast about it called Sam Walker's Desert Diaries. You should totally listen. But only about two weeks after they arrived in Phoenix, Sam got the news that her mother had lung cancer. At this point, her mom lived alone in Perth in Western Australia. So Sam flew to Australia to help her mom recover from surgery. We'd been here about two weeks and I get a message saying, there's a video, WhatsApp, and it says, don't watch this with the children. And we'd been in the States two weeks, two weeks. We Mm. were literally at the completely berserk, what the heck is going on? (laughs) How do we remember which side of the road to drive on? Ah, I've got to find a school. Ah, we've got to find a house. Oh my gosh, our furniture's on a ship in the middle of the ocean. What have we done? That, That moment of moving our entire lives to another country. So I thought, oh, she's going to come and visit because she told me she was going to come and visit sooner rather than later. Um, so I thought, oh, she says, don't watch with the children because she's obviously going to say when she's arriving, maybe she's booked a flight. So I get this message and I watch it and she's not, she hasn't booked a flight. She's got lung cancer. And yeah, again, mm. it takes me back to that crinkly blue airmail where everything changes in that moment. And I'm like, Okay, so again, everything I'd imagine might the future might be like has changed like that. The good news was it was detected early. And then in August, we kind of get to the point where we say, okay, well, we know that she's got to have a major operation. And what's going to happen is they're going to go and cut her open, get into her lung, take all the cancer out. So I thought, well, she she's on her own. <laughs> she left everyone again and went to the other side of the country, and she's in her on her own in a in an apartment above a restaurant in Perth. And who's going to look after her? This is a major operation. So I spoke to my husband. I was like, I've got to go. I've got to go. And he was just, he's amazing. And he went, I'll, I'll sort it out. I don't know. don't know what I'll do, but I'll, I'll sort something out. I'll sort something out. So off I went to Western Australia. And I arrived to find, you know, my mum was in organizational mode. So she was like, here's all the things. If I die on the operating table, here's where I want my funeral to be. I don't want a service. I want this done here. Here's a crematorium I want you to go to. She told me where there was $1,000 in a bag of frozen peas in the in the freezer <laughs> where, yeah, where I could go in and, you know, information and we go into hospital so eventually the phone rings and it's the surgeon Mm -hmm. and he says unfortunately when we opened up your mum the reason we took so long is that we found a bunch of other tumors ordinarily we would have taken that whole lung out but we can't because our other lung is too weak because she's got copd so there's nothing we can do 
Mm. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means, unfortunately, she doesn't have very long to live. I was like, well, how long? And he sort of mumbled and few months. I remember writing all of this down, like scribbling it all down <laughs> because I knew I'd have to tell her because she said to me, I don't want them to tell me. I want, I want you to tell me. But I knew she'd ask me loads of questions. And I thought, if I don't have the answers to this question, she's going to be annoyed. So they took me into her room and I s- sat in this room waiting for her to come in. And she was kind of heart, semi-conscious. The first thing she said to me was, they didn't get it, did they? Mm. And I said, no. And then she fell asleep. And then shortly thereafter, you decided to go on this Mm. incredible journey with her. And I've been reading your writing about that time and listening to the stories. And it's just so cinematic and so beautiful. I love my mom and I set off north with no real plan, like a terminal Thelma and Louise. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd picked her up from hospital and we'd, and we'd come home and it was, we were both in shock. We didn't really know what to say. We talked about lots of things apart from the thing. She said to me, how long did they say I have left? And I couldn't bring myself to say it. So I just said, a while. They're not quite sure <laughs> because I just, I didn't even want to say anything out loud. But we were sitting in our apartment. I was drinking more of the bottle of whiskey I'd bought. She was drinking some beers. She likes a beer, my mum. And we were watching terrible movies. My mum has, and she'll probably hear this and go, no, I don't. She has terrible taste in movies. Anyway, so that's unfair of me. We have different taste in movies. So we were watching, and I was thinking, we're sitting in an apartment. And my mum doesn't have very long left to live. And we're watching films that I'm not really connecting with. (laughs) I'm sitting on the same sofa. I'm sleeping on the same couch, sitting on the couch, drinking whiskey on a couch. Anyway, I went for a walk and I went for a walk along the Indian Ocean. And Western Australia is beautiful, like so beautiful. And I thought, why? What are we doing? Why are we sitting in this apartment? This is ridiculous. So I made a few phone calls and I got my mum to call her doctor and because she had a partially collapsed lung still following the surgery. And a very long story short is I then took a bus and a train and a taxi and I went to some crazy industrial estate in the south end of Perth and I picked up an RV and I drove it back and I bundled my mother in and I bundled in lots of beer. Hilariously, as it became a running joke, lots of toilet paper because she was like, oh, what? we must take a lot of toilet paper. And we just, Mm. yeah, we just set up driving north. We just sat off north. And I just wanted to feel alive. And I wanted to have a memory of doing something with my mother that wasn't sitting around in an apartment wondering when the oncologist was going to call to tell us what the bad news was. And I wanted to have kind of a real anchor of a memory of time we had spent together in the worst of times that I could look back on and feel good. What did you all learn from each other during that time? I kind of wanted to know what made her tick, I guess. And I wanted to know if she had any regrets. And I just wanted to be with her, actually. I wanted to to be with her because you can sit on the same couch as somebody and not be with them. And I wanted to see her happy. And I wanted to see her experience joy. And we did get to do all of those things. And, you know, one thing that I really learned on that trip was that my mother had served people her whole life. You know, she would marry to my dad for 20 odd years, married to her second husband for 20 odd years. She didn't really have any gap in between. He had kids who were incredibly challenging. And by that, I'm being super polite. She went through Hmm. hell. And 
when she picked up and moved 3,000 miles to live in an apartment above a restaurant in a city she didn't know, I could not bear it. I was like, she's there. She's got no friends. She's got no family around her. I can't stand it. I cannot stand it. And I felt that great responsibility to be there for her. I'm not talking just about this trip, but I'm like, I can't bear that she's on her own. It, it just, it physically, it is a physical reaction. I just thought, I can't stand the thought of her rattling around this little house and, ah. And then I got there and it's actually mm. a really lovely apartment and it's, it felt really homely and she'd made it really nice. And it was a little enclave and her little front door that she could shut. And she said to me, I'm happy because no one is demanding anything from me. I only have to think about myself. It's the first time in my life I've only had to think about myself. And she said a few people had said to her, oh, you want to get some friendship groups together? And she was like, but with friends and with family comes responsibility. She said, you know, you meet a friend and then there's like, oh, well, I'm having a big problem with my granddaughter at the moment or I've got a big drama at work and you become this person who needs to give. And that's what friendship is about, of course, give and take. And she said, I've given for 50, 60, 70 years. I don't want to give for a while. And I thought, huh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you don't have to give anything to anyone anymore, actually. You, you can just take. And why not? We found the tiny little bar in Coral Bay where we spent most of our, you know, we spent three nights there, the longest place we stayed. We're showing the Rugby World Cup. I've never really been into sport. My mum loves it. And so to mm. sit and watch her get so passionate and excited and leap up with her beer and shouting at the TV screen and, you know, kind of having little tussles with the Aussies there because they were like, bloody pommies, we don't bloody want you to win. You bloody glass. And we were like, yeah, we're going to win. You know. And so I, I loved, again, it was that window onto the stuff that gave her joy. And, you know, she, when we were driving on the first, I think it was the second or third day, and she said... Um, I suppose there's no point in doing any of this, is there, really? Because I'll be dead soon and you can't take memories with you. And it was like, oosh, <laughs> ow. But then we got to a place called Hut Lagoon that's this amazing pink lake and it's this crazy algae that makes the lake bright bubblegum pink. And we just rounded the corner and there it was. And she's like, oh my gosh, look at it. She was like, everyone needs to see this. This is amazing. This is incredible. And, you know, and all those notions of well, what's the point, they just disappeared from that moment on. After the long trip to stay with her mom, Sam returned to her family in Phoenix, and she got a call from her mom that she did not expect. I'm at a concert with my friend Ian here in Phoenix, and my phone's ringing, it's my mom, and I'm like, what now? Oh my God, can't be more worse news. It was like, I can't get any worse. What's happening? But she kept calling. So I ran outside and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, why? What? And another oncologist had seen her file. Something to him seemed off kilter. He'd retested the tumors and found that in fact, her tumours aren't caused by smoking. They're not caused by the regular causes of lung cancer. They're caused by a genetic mutation, the EFJR gene. And if your lung cancer is caused by a genetic mutation, you don't have chemo. You can be given something called inhibitors. And inhibitors stop the tumours in their tracks. They can't grow anymore. They inhibit the growth of the tumour. Now, it only works in 60% of cases. 
And for those cases it does work in, it won't last forever. It can last for a year or two until the tumour gets clever and learns. And that's it then, you know, it's accelerated. But he put her on this drug and it worked. And her tumours have been frozen in time. I felt like, oh my gosh, there's hope that she will get to see her grandchildren again. And I wanted her to see the life we'd built for ourselves here. Mm. When you do something, you want your family to share it. But then then COVID came along and went, nah, (laughs) you can't see anybody. So yeah, I felt felt really angry at times that, you know, my mum's been given this extra chance. And now we've still been kept apart for another 18 months because we can't see each other. I don't know when I'm going to see her again. I don't know still if I'm going to see her again. But I feel more hopeful now that I will see her again than I did even a year ago. She's doing really well. And the tumours have not grown since she started taking these drugs, which is pretty amazing. I'll be thinking positive thoughts for you on that front. I'm just thinking it's so wonderful that you created those memories on that trip. And, you know, she said I had written down actually that part of the story that you wrote and and, uh, was going to say it mm-hmm. but then you said it um, I mean once I'm dead what what use are memories yeah. and but that's the whole point yeah right that's a wonderful place to end on I could talk to you for four hours <laughs> and or more and your life is um, so uh, cinematic in so many ways but also just so relatable even though we have not walked the same path um, this has been a really special conversation for me truly like I I, I feel um very connected to your story and I'm so grateful that you have taken so much time today well thank you so much oh it's lovely to talk to you happy birthday to your baby boy as well yes I don't know what we're gonna do we get him a slide and a water toy and zoom tomorrow and you know do the whole Ah, thing that's lovely I wasn't expecting to cry during this conversation But hearing the story of the birth of Sam's daughters got to me. Now, it's important to me that the show never implies that biological family is the truer family, or that having kids is the only thing that defines a family. But thinking about the birth of my son, who, by the way, is genetically half my husband and half my sister, was carried by another person, and 1,000% my son, is incredibly emotional for me. Even two years later. The intensity of that moment, when a person enters your life who changes it completely and forever, is one every family experiences in one way or another. And I think the reason Sam's story was so emotional for me is that you can hear how much she wanted these kids. You can hear it in her incredible tenacity, the pain and trauma she went through over and over It is such a powerful reminder that families aren't just things that happen. They are work. They take tons of effort to build, to maintain. No matter what size or shape your family is, I bet that rings true. I just watched my mother snuggle my little boy for the first time since the pandemic started and read him a story. Then he'll want to hang his picture on the refrigerator, which means he'll need scotch tape. He'll hang up his drawing and stand back and look at it. We'll remind him And no matter how loud and messy being a parent can feel, no matter how loud and messy being a son can feel, wow, it's worth the work.
Thank you so much to Sam Walker for joining us on the show today and sharing her story. As I've said a few times in this episode, just go to your favorite podcatcher and find Sam Walker Desert Diaries. Everything else will follow, including a lot of joy. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at TIMF Show. Our website is TIMFshow.com. This podcast is a production of The Story Producer, and it is made by me, Katie Clarkson, Trisha Bobita, Jackie Ball, and B. Bosco. It is edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe, and our music is by Andrew Edwards. Social Current takes care of our social media and show administration. You can find them at Social Current. That's social, C-U-R-R-A-N-T. And last but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Zibu Joe. If you like this show, please help spread the word. Give us five stars. Tell a friend. Do whatever you need to do to get this in somebody else's earbuds. Thank you so, so much for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy. Is the podcast all done, Sam?